Um, it's, it's a book of hope. And it's a book of, I guess, identification for people who've been uh, through trauma, mental illness, um, uh, drug and alcohol addiction. And I made it through and to let other people know that they're not alone, they're never alone and they can make it through. Hello everyone, it's time for another episode of the Ramos Law Difference Makers podcast where I'm your host, Dr. Jim Hoven, and I get to meet with amazing people that have come through amazing journeys, helping people and making a difference every single week. This is a highlight of the things I do during the week and I'm so proud to be able to share that with you. Today I have a guest who has a story and his story is one that thankfully most of us don't go through but we're gonna be able to learn from the, the places he's gone, the things he's seen and we're going to hear about not only how he made it through, but it, we're going to hear about what it's like to tell that story through a book. This, this uh, new friend of ours is an author, and he's a, an experienced, experienced person in the corrections industry. He's got a, lot, a wealth of knowledge for us. This is one that you're going to, it's going to tug on your heartstrings. It's going to make you understand a different part of life. And you're going to enjoy this. You're going to want to share this episode with others. So um, without any delay, I want to welcome Mr. Steve Moff to the show. Steve, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Jim. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. And I know that you've been on a bunch of podcasts and you're getting a lot of traction around your book. It's an inside job, kid, and we're going to get to that. But before we do, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background to, to ease us into the show? Because you have this amazing story of overcoming this crazy abuse to addiction to recovery model and how you got through that's fascinating. So can you just get us started with a little background? Sure. Um, I, I come from New York. I was born into a, a large family of seven kids and I uh, went to graduate in high school and went into the service, into the Navy. And uh, afterwards, I joined the Department of Corrections in New York State. And I was with them for 19 years and uh, experienced quite a bit of uh, uh, different aspects of corrections. I worked in shock uh, incarceration, um, worked as a, um, uh, a drill instructor for a short time and then a network officer, which means you actually work with the inmates. And they were um, parole violators uh, in this shock incarceration uh, model that we worked in. And uh, it was more of a, a hands-on kind of thing with the uh, uh, inmates uh, who had violated parole. And it was usually drug-related. So uh, I worked in that uh, area of corrections, but for the most part, I was working inside the, the prisons and I had worked in 10 different, uh, uh, facilities. Um, I had a hard time. I, that, that wasn't for me, believe it or not. Although I worked there for, worked in the department for 19 years and I ended up switching from different facilities thinking the grass was greener on the other side of the fence somewhat, you know, thinking maybe something's a little better than before, but it was all the same, you know, and it's a, it's a tough environment uh, for everyone. So um, anyways, that was, that's kind of my experience in corrections. And then afterwards I, um, uh, I was struggling with my addiction uh, since I was 13 years, 12 years old, 12 years old uh, up until, uh, I was about 45. Wow. And, uh, 
decades. Yeah. You, you experienced yeah. decades. And, and in the meantime, you went through, I, I, I want to, sorry to interrupt you there. I want to unpack a little bit about what you're talking about. So you started um, engaging with or experimenting with substances at 13. Can you give us how that happened? Was it because of something in your family that you saw there or were you hanging around, around with the wrong kids or how, how does a 13 year old start this exposure and what, what path did that take with you at home and with your friends and at school and all the rest? Cause you ended up, you know, going into service and all the other things. How did that work? Well, uh, I think it's, uh, all of the above. I mean, I, some of <laughs> my, my one, my oldest brother was a district manager for a beer distributor <laughs> and I have ended up after the service, I ended up working there for a short time. Um, my mother, who I wouldn't even classify her as a uh, alcoholic. Uh, I think she was a maintenance drinker uh, because of the relationship that she had with my father. And I think having seven kids, uh, it wasn't an everyday thing for her. It was just a weekend thing. But uh, I noticed when she was drinking at my age, about 12, um, I noticed that with all the the emotional and physical violence that that occurred that her release was having a few drinks with my her sister my aunt uh on the weekends and this was a pattern for most of my life living at home and uh i i took a notice to that and thought and of course you know kids that age you see back then you had beer commercials cigarette commercials and uh made it look uh, glamorous and course some of the crowd that i hung around with they like to you know get the booze and and have a good time and so i fell into that group and uh yeah i think that uh for for myself i needed an excuse anything i i could find to to uh numb the pain that i was feeling the emotional pain the the uh the the sense of isolation that i felt uh the loneliness uh not feeling understood not having anyone to talk to i think was a big thing because a lot of the things that happened in our home uh once it was over it was done it was it was just sacked away in the in the timbers i don't know if that's the right word the in your mind the subconscious i i I shouldn't get too fancy with words and get caught up with that but yeah you know you 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 bury it down in your subconscious and of course as we know it it comes up it'll find a way sooner or later if it's not dealt with and you know they talk about with your emotions you know embracing them uh and then letting them go accepting them letting them go i didn't have that um uh that type of uh ability. I wasn't taught that. No one teaches you back in the 60s and early 70s. You know, you don't know anything about how to deal with emotions except to bury them. Don't cry. Don't complain. And that was pretty much what You didn't have a support system from your family, it sounds like, because of the the activities and the abuse going on and just the way things were. You didn't have that. Your friends were kind of into some of the same things. I'm interested, did that impact or of course it impacted how did that impact your early life growing up did it were there things that you wish that you could have done but you couldn't because of this situation like play sports or be involved in this or be involved in that because something led you to join the navy out of high school what were you trying to escape that whole thing is there a tie in there at all 
well, you know, first, I want to make it clear that I, I love my family today. I love my father. And of course, I love, love my mother and, and my siblings. Uh, we're not that close right now. But back then, I think uh, his his uh, uh, the, the head of the household, my father, uh, everybody kind of followed his lead as far as how you deal with things. And uh, I, I think that there was a disconnect early on with my older brothers, except my, my next, my closest older brother, we, we were somewhat close and they were, you know, seven kids, the age difference was spread out quite a bit. And I just, you know, my three older brothers, they hung out together and then there was the rest of us. So uh, I wouldn't, I'm not going to point the finger at anybody. I, I mean, there, there comes a time through your, the, the phases of your life where you, you, you hold your parents accountable, you, you blame somebody else. But ultimately, you know, as you grow, you understand that, yes, those things happen. But right now, now that I'm aware of how it happened and what happened, it's up to me to 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 deal with it and find ways of doing healthier things for myself. So uh, that old type of thinking doesn't interfere with my adult life. Right. That's that tough. Sense. But boy, that's a big ask of a of a 15, 16 and 17 year old. Right. To have that kind of self-awareness. Did you, do you find that you gained that self-awareness early because of this, or was that something you gained after years of looking years. at it and therapy and whatever years. else that you did? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So what made you yeah. join the military then? Well, that was the tradition of my family. My father was in it. My uncles were in it. Some of my uncles were in the army air corps and the army. And I think, I'm not sure if any of them were in the Marines, but um, that was more or less expected to go into the service because my father believed uh, he didn't push college, didn't never push college, at least for, for any of us that I'm aware. Uh, but he wanted us to go into the service because it taught you discipline. And uh, that was the big thing. And not only that, uh, my older brothers, uh, I, I had one older brother stationed down in Florida. And my uh, mother took my youngest uh, brother and sister and myself, my one older brother to Florida where he was stationed, we got to go out on his destroyer out wow. to sea and they fired the five inch gun. I was, I was 13, I think 13 or 14 years old at that time, 13. And, uh, I was, I was hooked. I wanted to be in there. I loved it. it that being out in the ocean, the, the power of the, the ships that the, they exhibited what the ship could do. I got to go in the radar room and I, I it was just, I, I, I couldn't let it go. So, nice. uh, I joined and I, I, I wanted, I, I must say that I wanted to be in college. Um, I had a desire to do that. A lot of my um, schoolmates that went to college, some, some big name colleges, uh, I wanted to do that too. Plus my brother, my older brother became a doctor, became a vascular surgeon. I had another brother that became a captain in the New York State Police and my other brother was in business. So they were all successful and all of them went to college. I went to college piecemeal. I went to community colleges and finally got my degree after I was sober. Um, but uh, getting back to the military part, that was expected of us. So, And yeah. when you went there, what was it like? And maybe that was, maybe it was a respite for you to, to struggle with your addiction and grapple with it during the military. Or, or was that, a, was that a, a heavy part of that experience too? Well, my experience in the service lasted less than a year. I, uh, 
I received an honorable discharge. And to make a long story short out of this, uh, um, I had been misled by the recruiter about I wanted to be a hospital corpsman. And uh, I had the qualification after the testing, uh, the ASVABs. And uh, because I had experimented with uh, marijuana, which he kind of coaxed me into admitting that in the sense that he said my brother, my, my older brother, Mike, had also went into the Navy months before me. And um, he had said to me in the office when I was supposed to pick my A school, he said, uh, so you're your brother tells me you may have tried marijuana. And I thought there's no, and he didn't, he never said that. He, he may have admitted it himself. I don't know, but I found out later, he never said anything to the recruiter about that, but he had coaxed me into picking a different job because at the time, the old GI bill, everybody was trying to get in in 1976. And so they had to fill quotas, you know, later on you figured it out, you know, and he got me to go into something else or pick something else other than Corman. I guess there was a lot that were filling those, those ranks. And uh, later on, I was getting in fights in the service. And uh, I wasn't, you know, I was unhappy that I couldn't become a, a corpsman. And so a gentleman, a, another uh, a warrant officer had uh, uh, helped me out and asked me what the problem was. And I told him my story and he says, well, let's see if we can't get get you what you want. And eventually it came to uh, the point where he, we signed a contract and I was able to uh, work as a corpsman aboard the ship that I was going to be on. So when I got on the ship, I did what I was required. I did my temporary duty assignment, was, which was for three months. And uh, there was a bully on the ship who I got in a fight with. There was no charges. I didn't get sent to the brig because the guy was bullying other guys. And my master chief said, don't ever do it again but maybe this guy learned his lesson and it was all done and over with. And then when I went to the guy and said, Hey, I did my thing. I'm ready to go. Uh, when can I start in uh, sick bay? And he says, there's no effing way you're going to work in my department. You got in a fight. And that was it. And the, the, the moral of that story is that when that happened, instead of me fighting it or going and saying, wait a minute, you can't do that. I had a signed contract. I gave up right there. I didn't say anything. I went into a deep depression. I ended up taking a bunch of pills um, and Tylenol and Coracine, high blood pressure. I, I just took a bunch of them. And they had trouble waking me up, sent me to sick bay, sent me to a psychiatrist later. And uh, ultimately, I got the discharge, I, the, the honorable discharge, because the, the commander who had spoke with me, the, the, the psychiatrist, he offered it to me. So that's, that was my story in the service. Got it. And Steve, and, when was it that you were acutely aware that, that the substances of alcohol and whatever else may have been alongside that, that they had control of you versus you quote unquote, having control of them? Was there a wake up moment when you hit bottom? And what was that like? Um, I had several bottoms, Jim. I, I had several bottoms. Uh, the last bottom, uh, I start, well, first of all, let me begin by saying I entered um, rehab in my third year working in corrections. Uh, and I, there was a lot of violence, there was PTSD, a lot, of, a lot of incidents happened, stabbings and stuff. And I dealt with it by my drinking and 
doing cocaine, smoking pot. I mean, that's how I coped. And they gave me a choice. They said either I go to a rehab or I'm out the door. So that was 1984. So I went to the rehab that lasted, you know, I, I was going to meetings, I was doing the deal, but then I got away from it. And uh, um, I'm sorry, what was your, does that answer your yeah, question? Yeah, basically I was wanting to see with respect to you understanding when this thing had a grip on you that you needed help with. So it sounds like it was in that time of your life in, in the middle of that correction stint when you're like, man, I better, I better, you know, I'm busted. I better get help. I was, yeah, I, I was out of control and they forced that upon me. I wasn't going to get the help. That was, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, the employee assistance uh, program uh, coordinator had said, you know, we'd like you to go to the rehab. And I said, I'm good. I know I got to slow down. I was trying to reason myself out of it. And he says, you don't understand. They're giving you a choice. Either you do it or you're out the door. So I went. And when I really think that I realized, you know, I had a, I need to do something or I'm, it's going to kill me. Um, I uh, let someone shoot me up with heroin. And that was when I was uh, my about 41, 42. Um, I had separated from my wife. Uh, I was missing my kids. Um, it, it, that was probably the biggest bottom I had. And I soon, I, after about a year, I went back to another rehab and that was on my own. And that didn't quite work. And then finally, um, it came, there was a point where I was ready to take my life and some miraculous things happened. I can't explain them. I, I was raised Catholic, but I've kind of got away from that. But um, the universe, somehow things just played out that, that, that I came that close. And uh, when that happened, I never looked back. I went back to, I went to counseling, of course, uh, in conjunction with going back to meetings because I had stopped going to meetings. That was when I was about 45. And... Uh, that is about the time of my life when it turned around for me. Oh, that's amazing. And would you say that there was a, a, a quote unquote conspiracy of events of good things that happened to help you not take your life? Or was there something where you just said, bang, like this, I can't do this. I, I'm up to this point. Was it your kids, you know, you need to be there for your kids. Is there anything that you can remember? Because that might be something that people watching or listening, they might be feeling what you're feeling and, and be in a place where they don't know what to do. And, and there's a guy named Anthony Robbins that a lot of people are familiar with, Tony Robbins. And he's like, look, until you say no more, until you say this is the moment that it's easy for it to drag on, like you had said, right? Or you're like, oh, I'll get better and I'll slow it down. There has to be a, a reckoning with yourself. And sometimes it comes through a divine intervention, like you're talking about, um, that yeah. kind of thing. What was your story there? Well, I had gotten to the point where um, I went on disability because I was diagnosed after I, well, when I left corrections, um, it was on disability because I received uh, um, the diagnosis of uh, PTSD and bipolar disorder. And I uh, was struggling with that. I was put on disability and that I had a hard time dealing with to be labeled disabled. Um, that, that really 
weighed on me. And there's when I picked up and that had to do with the heroin and doing cocaine and doing all these crazy drugs. And besides drinking, uh, that I thought, you know, I don't want, I didn't want to live anymore. I was going nowhere. I was separated and, you know, I could visit my kids, you know, see them anytime I wanted to, but I had them once a week and that was taking me down. And I was, I was, a, I was at the bottom there. I, I was still drinking and doing all the wrong things. And at one point I was living in an apartment and um, I had received a phone call from a bill collector and I had sent a payment and it had to do with Verizon. And uh, this guy was harassing me and I had sent the payment and be it, I'll be it late, but I had sent it in a couple of days before this phone call and he's harassing me and saying, I'm going to have to stop at your door to come and knock on your door until I get what, you know, what I want. I need, you need to pay up and all this. And I, I kept explaining it to him and he, Finally, I said, I'm going to blow my effing brains out. I, you know, leave me alone. And I hung up on him and uh, I called Verizon and pretty much the same thing. We can do nothing about it. There's nothing we can do about it. Um, it's already been sent to the bill collector. I'm sorry that yada, yada. And I was just at the end of my rope, you know, and I, you know, I was searching for cash because I was paying for alimony and I was paying child support. So I didn't have much. And, um, there too, I said, I'm going to blow my effing brains out. And I hung up the phone. Well, I sat there for about 45 minutes and I just contemplated taking my life. I, I was in the apartment alone. Um, it was an upstairs apartment. There was a banister that went up, you know, stairway that went up to the apartment. And I was contemplating or planning uh, hanging myself. And I did it in such detail. It's, it's even upsetting when I, I think about to the detail that I planned this out. And I, I was about to do it. Uh, didn't want my feet to touch the floor, hanging from the banister, letting myself down so I didn't break the, the banister because of my weight. I mean, I just right down to the very details. And close to 45 minutes, I, I just kept doing this, kept doing this. And in my, my mind... And suddenly I started feeling nauseated because I was anticipating what I was about to do. Uh, you know, you think about your kids, you, you, but you, you've, I felt like such a failure, failure at that point that it, I, I kept pushing those good things out. I, I can't do this. I can't take this anymore. So I actually got up to uh, go to my bedroom to get a sheet. I plan on ripping it and in strips, the whole thing. Uh, and as I got up and I'm walking slowly, I mean, physically, I was just so nauseated because I, I knew this was going to be it. And suddenly the phone rang and it brought me back into the room and then it rang again. And I thought, okay, maybe it's my mother. I, who knows my sister, I walked over to the phone and I picked it up and the voice out of the other end and said, hello, Steve. And I said, who is this? And the woman had said, this is Angela. I'm from the suicide hotline. How could wow. this be? Wow. How could, 
And I said, well, what, why are you calling me? She goes, there was a woman at uh, Verizon who called us and told us what you had said. And uh, it gets me emotional when I yes. think about it. Oh my but gosh. Coming that close and having that happen at that point was like, oh my God. I, it, was, it was divine intervention. I, I have no other belief other than that. And uh, there's a couple of other things that happened. Uh, before that, which is, was another divine intervention moment that I didn't even mention. But um, at that point, you know, she talked with me for about 10, 15 minutes and made sure I was okay. And I felt better just knowing someone cared. Not that my family didn't or my, 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 the separation from my wife, and my kids, but at that point, hearing that voice that, you know, it made all the difference in the world. What an incredible role. You know, I bet, I know that for me, that was like a, a, a fresh needed slap in the face as far as that kind of service. I don't know how many people get that kind of a phone call and the role that those people play on these kind of hotlines and those kind of things for strangers. To me, you always think of, you know, the in-person intervention, going to therapy, whatever these kinds of things are. But wow, this is something. Did you delve any more into, now that you're, you're kind of looking at this from a different perspective, how common it is for, for perfect strangers through hotlines to get involved in suicide cases? Um, I don't know, Jim. I, I'm still, when I still think about it, I don't know how often that happens. Yeah. Uh, but the woman at Verizon, whomever she was, God bless her. I mean, this was back in 2005. Um, I, I, I don't, you know, as I was saying before, uh, there was another God moment, if you will. Uh, and it was when, uh, in 2005, just before at this point, I should back up and explain that there was something that you mentioned that Tony Robbins said, and it was a Super Bowl Sunday in 2005. It was in February. I think it was February. Yeah, February 6th, I believe. And uh, because I, I count my, yeah, it's February 6th. Um, I was in the bar in my regular watering hole, and I was by myself figuratively because everybody around me, people were drinking and partying, having a great time at the bar, watching the game. Halftime came. I remember there was a, I had a bottle of Michelob and I took a sip and I looked at the halftime score and I looked down and I just remember saying to myself, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. And it was at that very point, something took over and I left the bar. I went home. The next day, I, I got to stop drinking. You know, I, I got to stop drinking. And I was looking on the computer for a job. And, and it was difficult because I was labeled disabled. And it was difficult uh, finding work. And uh, I knew that that was a lifesaver because, you know, keeping busy and, and productive is very important. So I was looking on the computer. And then I had a newspaper next to me. I opened the local newspaper and I'm looking in the help ads and in between the help ads, there was a, there was a little ad that said something about a novena um, and prayer. And it said, if you say this prayer, I believe it was five times recited five times. 
you will get your wish or something or, or uh, God will work in your life or something like that. And I said, oh, gosh, you got to be kidding me. And at the bottom, it said, you will receive a phone call within three minutes. That's what it said. Wow. And I thought, okay, all right, I'll bite. <laughs> I had to, what have I had to lose? What, what did I have to lose here? Um, so I, I recited the novena. And then um, when I finished, I looked at the clock and I said, okay, three minutes, let's see what happens. And I sat there and I waited. I waited. I said, this is ridiculous. I, I felt like a fool, to be honest. And I sat there. And about 15 seconds before it was three minutes, the three minutes were, were up. And I, this, I, I feel like a fool sitting here expecting this. And about 10 to five seconds before the uh, three minutes was up, the phone rings. Oh. And I thought, no, it's got to be my mother, you know. Again, the phone. I picked up the phone and I picked up the old phones and I listened into the receiver and there was no sound. And I said, Hello? Hello? No sound, no response. I hung up the phone and I said, Well, I guess that's my message. I went in, I took, I was taking five different prescription drugs for my uh, bipolar disorder. And I threw them all away. I would never recommend anyone do this. And you as a doctor would, would of course, agree with this. But at this point, nothing was going to stop me. And so I got rid of them all. I started uh, walking three miles a day and getting myself back in shape. And, uh, you know, a week later, I quit smoking, quit drinking, quit the prescription drugs, quit smoking all within a week and a half. And Leading up to the story of the suicide part, um, I believe that's partially what happened when I went into a deep depression was because of the way I did it. Yes. I, I, I would uh, pretty much bet on that. So um, that is, was the sec first God shot, and the second one was the second phone call. So these came through phone calls. And, you know, you wonder, did I manifest this? How, how does this work? What <laughs> I haven't tried to explain it to others and I would not, I would leave that up to others to decide what it means to them and, and how it could help them or what, or someone else. Absolutely. Well, you did find help in the form of horses. How did that come across? How did you begin working with horses? And then what did that teach you to help you with your sobriety? Well, I, I had uh, finished my, uh, college. I, I, got, I got a degree in sociology and media studies. And once that was done and my two daughters were both in college, it was my time I could leave. I, and we talked about this. I talked about this with my daughters. So I was on my way out West and I wanted to, I, I wanted to be out West. I, I'd always read books, saw movies. I loved movies. I loved acting. I, I wanted to make my way to California eventually, but um, I ended up in, in um, uh, Colorado, and I was working at a, a um, uh, robotics company in Boulder. And for my free time, you know, I, I was still attending meetings, but I, I needed to keep busy. I needed, I was always taught in AA, help others, get out of your own head. That's what you do. Well, 
helping animals was the choice I made in, in Hygiene, Colorado. I'm sure you may be familiar with Hygiene. Yes, sir. There was a horse rescue. Shirley Hoffman was the woman out there who trained me on how to take care of horses and treat horses. Wonderful woman, her and her um, uh, partner, Paul. And Shirley, by this time, was in her late 60s, I believe. But um, I worked at this horse rescue, and I learned how to take care of horses. I always loved horses. And that went on for a number of months. And then I ended up working at an, I, there was another advertisement for work, volunteer work, and it was at a hippotherapy ranch, which is a mode of uh, a treatment for people who are autistic, um, uh, head trauma, those kinds of things that um, need stimulation. And, and that's just one aspect of uh, hippotherapy covers a lot of ground, but that's basically what they do. And the therapist, and I started working this, working there, and the therapist had uh, trained me, you know, how to uh, work with them while they're working with clients on the horses. The movement stimulates their brain. It gets into a lot of stuff, but basically that's what it does. And these autistic people, uh, it was amazing. They would move, they would talk, they would smile. It really, it made a difference. So I worked there for about three months and then, um, and it was fulfilling. And, you know, I did, you know, I, I mended fences like Desperado. I did that <laughs> stuff too. And, you know, I, I love that song because I, I related a lot to it. And uh, I eventually uh, put an ad or, or put myself out there for ads on horse groom, horse.com, all these different uh, uh, avenues to, to work at horse ranches. And uh, my first offer was um, up in, uh, um, Idaho, Emmett, Idaho, at, at, uh, Appaloosa ranch. And from there I went to Washington and there's an interesting story there, California, Arizona. I traveled from coast to coast, wherever I was called. And I was usually down at one place, um, other places. I didn't think I was qualified. I'd move on and, you know, give them notice. I didn't just take off, um, uh, except for one place where I had trouble with, uh, the owner didn't, Got, I think it was a jealousy thing. I, I'm not sure. But basically, it was a wonderful experience with the horses. I, I, that helped me along because I traveled for almost three years around the country and, and by myself. And that was, that was, I believe, my saving grace. And I also attended meetings in different states. I, I, I got a lot of uh, exposure to a, a lot of wonderful people, too. Mm, that's so good. And do you still work with horses? Is that part of your world yeah. these days? It, right now, it's not. I, I uh, when I I've done so much since then. After the horses, um, I took up acting. I I'd been acting in New York, and then when I get out, I, I landed in Sedona, Arizona, and I was a I worked at a radio station as a soundboard operator and announcer, and I did that for a short time, and then uh, took acting classes and ended up in California. I was in a bunch of TV shows. And this is a part of the book that I couldn't put a lot in on this, but it was like living your dreams, becoming sober, becoming clean, and living out these dreams. Uh, yes. I had these dreams since I was a kid. Right. And I was, I was, I was on Parenthood. I was on like 20 some shows, uh, TV episodes, and a couple of movies, uh, Hail Caesar with George Clooney. And I was just background. And those things, but um, what an experience! I got to meet a lot of the actors, and and some. It was wonderful, all I can say. And after I did that, um, I 
returned to Sedona because I, I, uh, something was, I just didn't have the confidence to go on in uh, the acting at that point. And uh, I met my partner, my now partner, uh, Ann, who had some grandkids who were abused. Um, and uh, I, because of their um, autonomy, I'm not going to get into it, but they were pretty badly abused. And she told me about it. Uh, and we weren't dating, we were friends. She offered me some work and we became friends. And then she told me about this and um, she would be having custody. And I decided, it took a couple of months, we started dating and I decided this is it. This is what I wanna do. So from the horses to the acting and then meeting Anne and here in Colorado now, um, we're both raising her, her grandkids mm -hmm. and um, another new challenge in my life. Yeah. And, uh, well, speaking of challenge, you decided to write a book and it's not an easy feat. I've uh, written one very small book with a workbook and I did it back in 96. So it's certainly been, you know, a, a long time ago since I undertook that effort. But um, your book is called It's an Inside Job Kid. Can you give us the inspiration on what made you decide to write the book and and kind of the philosophy of the book? Yeah, absolutely. Um here it is right here. The book is on Amazon. Whoa. Sorry. is on Amazon, um, Kindle, and uh, Audible. It's on all three uh, for uh, reading, listening, and um, hearing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, reading, listening, and Kindle. <laughs> Whatever we call that these days. The Audible. I, <laughs> I'm all nervous. What can I say? Uh -huh. But um, this book, it wasn't, it was difficult. I, 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 no one should be under the impression that, you know, I'm just going to write a book. It went through a lot of edits uh, uh, for nearly four years that I was doing. And of course, and I knew this before I started, you don't edit your own work, but I had had difficulty with uh, uh, one editor and it, it just didn't get done. And so finally I got a good professional editor to do it. And it's, you know, it's, it's fine. It's a, it's a good book. I, I believe what do you hope to get across in the book, Steve? What is the main message that you would, would want people to take away from that work? Um, well, the, the main message is that you're never alone. Uh, if you read my book and you see all the foolish choices I made and, all the mistakes I made and how I had to, uh, how I recovered from them and what I had to do to recover. Um, it's, it's a book of hope and it's a mm -hmm. book of, I guess, identification for people who've been uh, through trauma, mental illness, um, uh, drug and alcohol addiction. And in the end, it, it came out to love. And that was with Anne and I and what we're doing now together. Um, the, the other thing I did want to point out uh, with this people struggling with uh, mental health issues is uh, I struggled with it for 12 years. I went through shock treatment. I, I, uh, I went through quite a bit um, that I never thought I'd come back from. I really didn't believe that the direction I was going and, and what was needed to help me. And I, you know, people asked, did that shock therapy help? And I would have to say, yes. I mean, it, it, it cleared my thinking, uh, but uh, it was pretty intense. Uh, the whole experience was pretty intense, and I made it through and to let other people know that 
they're not alone. They're never alone and they can make it through. Um, that's pretty much it. You're never alone. Is there going to that, to the electroconvulsive therapy, um, were you ordered to do that or was that something that was no. recommended that you said, okay, I'll try it. And was it something that you had to do a lot or was a few times in a series and then it was done? How did you know it was complete? Well, I, it was offered to me by a wonderful man. He was, uh, um, very helpful, uh, with, with getting me well. And, uh, he had suggested it. And then of course I was also mixing alcohol with my prescribed prescription medications. I mean, let's not forget that the foolish things that I did, um, mixing those, but because of that, I was, I was in a bad way. And finally I said, well, what about the shock treatments? Can maybe we, I'd like to try it. And all told it was about 12 treatments. Um, and, uh, it, it cleared up my thinking, uh, the, the, the rumination, the, uh, the uh, being stuck, I was a big thing for me, and I'm sure it's probably for many other people was being stuck in the past, uh, what happened to you and the unfairness that life is. I mean, life isn't fair or unfair. Life just is life. And of course, you know, we, we pick up these beliefs when we're very young and, uh, you know, it's about change. It's, it's also the book is about change and recovery. I, I should mention that. And, uh, you know, they say death and taxes are, are always a thing in life. Mm -hmm. And so is change. And I put that number one. Yeah, I, I would agree. I agree. That happens every day versus taxes once a year and death once. <laughs> yeah. And we fight it. We fight it just like we fight the other stuff. Yes. Yeah. And you the know? more I think from my perspective, the more we can understand that change is a constant and we embrace it and understand how to navigate the world or the waters of change. It's at that point where, you know, Jim Rohn, who was Anthony Robbins uh, mentor, original mentor says oh. that you can put the, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, you can look him up. He's got some great stuff. Um, it says that you don't control the wind, but you control the direction of the sails. So we're, if we're all on our own boat and the, that change and that triumph and tragedy, it's all coming in our life. How we direct those sails determines our, our chart, our chart charted course. So. I really, really, really appreciate that. And, and the openness that you've had in sharing this with us, Steve, is, is amazing. And as I was looking through some of your past and your history and going through all the information for our show today, I noticed that you had some life philosophies and you, you've, I think they're worth bearing. You've talked about a couple of them in um, resilience and helping others and passing it on. What about the belief that miracles happen, just keep believing? I know that's one of your philosophies Give, give us the, the background of that. Well, uh, the miracles, which we, I think we discussed, I would consider them miracles, mm -hmm. um, is, uh, and the resilience, that was another thing. There's a lot of different things in the book. Uh, my um, uh, former counselor back in New York had read the book, and what she came away with from the book was resilience. It was, you know, the resilience. And uh, that was... Uh, um, a big part of it besides never being, you're never alone when you're having to deal with this, uh, uh, the belief that you get, you know, it's about changing beliefs. Um, I'm sorry. What was that question, Jim? No, we were uh, just going through your philosophies. You were talking about the art of resilience oh. and then also not being afraid to ask for help. That's another, another big one that you've highlighted in your work. A ask for help. Yeah. You, you, it's, it's, it's humbling 
but it's life-saving. And there was another, I put a quote in there. It was, I don't know if it, you know, I, I've researched it several times, but there's a quote in there that I, I put at the end of one of the chapters, and I forget which one it is. I, uh, it, 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 it talks about um, acceptance, and it was after an experience when I was young and something, I, something foolish I did to try to fit in with life, you know, trying to fit in with life and, and, and people and kids at, at that age. And uh, I had allowed some things to happen, but then it was some things that had, the thing that happened that I'm specifically talking about were by other boys. And I lived with that for a long time and it was a humiliating experience. And at the end of the chapter I put, and I think it's a Zen uh, master uh, who had said it, but it was, uh, it goes like this. When you blame others, you have a long way to go. When you blame yourself, you're halfway there. And when you blame no one, you've arrived. Wow. So it's acceptance. And to me, it's, it's acceptance. You, this is life. And that ultimately, you can't blame anybody. You just live life and do the best you can. Um, the result, all those pieces that we've mentioned, Jim, is uh, uh, what it takes. It takes a lot of different things. But the one thing is... Uh, uh, you're, you're, you're never alone to those people out there that you're never alone and ask for the help. Um, there's very caring and loving people out there. Um, be open to it um, and not pick up. Uh, you know, you can say all those things, but the first thing I would say is get help, make the phone call. In my book, I've got a list for, for uh, all of the uh, um, phone numbers uh, for, for uh, the suicide hotline, the crisis text um, line, uh, SAMHSA, the National Helpline, Alcoholics Resource Line, and Naranon and Al-Anon organizations. And those are some of the people you can call, uh, but you can't get better without asking for help because people, you can't, people can't do it for you. You have to do it for yourself. You know, no one's going to do it for you. Uh, there, you may have had offers, but if you're not ready to, to, to start getting better, then, you know, I guess you have to wait till you hit bottom or another bottom, like I did. Wow. Um, I, I hit a couple of bottoms. So. Well, I'll tell you what, you have taken us on a, a journey of truth, of understanding and I'm telling you, it's, it's something that has really connected with me as far as the, the process and the path that you've taken. I know that you mentioned that the book is available on, um, that you can get it on Kindle, you can get it on Amazon. Just one more time, if people want to connect with you, Steve, and either hear your story, talk with you, um, meet with you, or get your book, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, in the back of the book, or no, it's in the front of the book, is my email. I've, I've uh, included my email here. Um, yeah, where is it? <laughs> um, it's in there somewhere. Uh, I thought it was on the front uh, with, with the credits. Uh, my, my email is smoffe1 at icloud.com. That's smoff1 at icloud.com. And, you know, people can send me a, an email if um, they, they want any more information, um, whatever. And, uh, you know, I'm, I've got a full, 
full schedule with two kids, a, a 15 year old and a, a seven year old. But um, yeah, the number's there. And if I can offer any for any information or direction, uh, how to get help, please have them drop me a line. Absolutely. And Steve, this has been a real treat for me. I, I wish you nothing but the best for your life, number one, and your book, number two. The fact that you're willing to help raise two kids, two grandkids, and spend that time and energy with them, with your partner, it just says so much about you. And so just know you always have a friend in, in me and in us in Ramos Law. And I want to thank you for the time today. Thank you very much. And I just want to say, for those who buy the book, I've been accused of spilling my guts, but it helped me. And if it can help someone else, I, I hope they get it and read it and help themselves. I love Thank it. Thank you so much. Absolutely. It's been a joy. It's been a pleasure. And so for those of you where this twinged your heartstrings or you know someone who's going through a difficult journey, pick up the book, check it out, and then uh, send us a comment about it. So until next time, keep making a difference out there. Just like Steve's making a difference, you can make a difference too. Everyone take care and we'll see you next time. Thank you.